Welcome to Shoot the Corecast, the official companion podcast to the RF Generation Shmup Club. This is a family-friendly shmup-themed podcast that prefers green, orange, and white vanilla to pumpkin spice. I am Addicted, and with me as always, I have... Metal Fro, also known as the Game Boy Guru. And we're coming at you live from RFGeneration.com, one of the greatest places to catalog your collection. We also have, along with the Shmup Club, we also have a... Another form of monthly playthrough called the Playcast, hosted by Single Banana and <clears throat> Grey Ghost eighty one. They are also currently doing a try and beat every NES game, every licensed NES game ever made. So if you'd like to take part in that, please join us over at rfgeneration.com. And all of this is at no cost to you. For the month of August, we played the indie darling Zero Ranger. Indeed. Well, now that we know the game of the month, let's bring us to our question of the month. Zero Ranger takes a lot of inspiration from other games and displays those influences clearly. What other games are not bashful about wearing their influences on their sleeve? Our, our first answer comes to us from at Shmup Junkie. I think I was just chatting with someone yesterday. I'll eliminate down blatantly apes like three to four other genre-defining games all rolled into one, but does it so well, it's one of the best shooters on the system. Uh, our next one comes from Zoido, who says, Blackbird. Everything screams Dark Fantasy Zone. This month's uh, Kamui is also heavily inspired by Rayforce. Spoiler alert. 
The next one comes to us from Maz 6708-6804. There are so many possible answers. I'll choose to mention is ZR Indy Pier Super Hydra for its deep Konami and Irem roots. Indeed. Yeah, I kind of I kind of put out the question a little late, so we only got a that small handful of answers, but thank you to everyone who did uh, contribute. We do appreciate your perspectives. So what, what would be your answer for the question of the month? You know, I was thinking about this and I mean, I, I could be, I could be cheeky and, and say it's the September game, but I think probably in a way I'd almost have to go with, I don't know, something early. You know, there are so many, there are so many early shooters that, uh, fixed screen shooters that ape the Space Invaders formula. There are so many fixed screen shooters that ape the Galaxian formula. I just think that there's there are so many examples of that out there that it's kind of hard to sift through them all. And that's realistically why most of those games you never hear about anymore, or nobody knows about them, uh, unless they're really well um, learned about arcade games and and kind of the origins of the genre because generally speaking most of those games didn't really do that formula any better than what the original games did so there's a reason that space invaders has lasted so long and and remained relevant there's a reason that galaxian and galaga are still talked about so fondly and remembered so well but if I was going to go with something a little bit more recent, uh, then I would have to say, you know, maybe Polestar is pretty unabashedly a love letter to our type. And realistically, you could say the same thing about Last Resort in a lot of ways, too. So a couple of Neo Geo shoot 'em ups that very much show their love for our type without any hesitation. Uh, I think that's a good answer in there. I would, uh, a lot of the doujin shmups are, have their roots in the classics on there. We're looking at Crimson Clover that we played last year. That is definitely a love letter to cave games. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a developer. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it got so meta that Konami started aping itself with Parodius. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So a lot of good good answers here, but it's interesting to see, as we'll get into this, all these love letters, all these tropes that come with it, and how when executed well, it really adds to the game. Uh, Would you like to talk about the developer of the game? Yeah. Zero Ranger was developed and published by System Erasure, which is an indie dev team that's just two people, Eero... Latinen and Anti Ukula. I probably butchered those names. I apologize. They are based in Finland, so I'll have the excuse that I know nothing about Finnish pronunciation. But actually, the game started life back in 2008 and was originally called Final Boss when it kind of started development. Uh, and then it wasn't actually until not long before release, from what I understand that they renamed the game from Final Boss to Zero Ranger so that it would be easier to find in Google searches and, you know, when looking for the game, because 
final boss is something that a lot of games have a final boss, and so it's it's a bit nondescript comparatively. Zero Ranger was released uh, in 2018 on both Steam and Itch.io, and it it initially included just a single game mode, uh, which was later changed uh, from. I don't remember what the name was. I've seen an old video of it that mentioned uh, what the mode was called. But uh, that's what is called Green Orange, is kind of the primary mode in the game. Uh, And then the free DLC was released in July of this year, uh, 2020, and added the arranged mode known as White Vanilla. And you can unlock that in the game by essentially playing green over once and then getting a game over that allows you to access white vanilla. And I wonder what the next one will be pumpkin spice. What do you think? (laughs) I don't know. That would be a very, because if you, I mean, on the title screen, you look, there is a third slot or not the title screen, but the mode select screen, there is a third slot. So if they planned on doing another mode, that would be a fun and sort of tongue-in-cheek way to do that. But I don't know. It's a good question. You know, obviously, we, we can get into a lot of the stuff, you know, with the game and, and how all of this ties together. But one of the things that I found interesting is that apparently the game has a lot of, of sort of Buddhism references throughout the game. Some are kind of subtle and some are pretty blatant but definitely is one of the tropes that is uh, referenced in the game quite a bit. And uh, it also borrows heavily from a lot of other shoot-em-ups. There are a lot of homages. There are a lot of elements in the game that are directly pulled from other games or, you know, basically them sort of copying other games, but kind of sort of putting their own light spin on them. Uh, And so we can get into more of that kind of as we talk about gameplay, but there's also references to mecha anime, one that I wasn't, I was familiar with in name, but I don't really know much about. But as I was streaming the game during the course of the month, one of the things that some of the viewers were saying is that the mech that was on screen at one point uh, was basically an homage to Gurren Lagann. So, uh, there's a lot going on in this game. Yeah, I, I think the key takeaway is that the game is more than the sum of than the sum of its parts. It's yeah, definitely better. And even though it wears all of its influences on its sleeve, it provides a unique twist on it. It's interesting to see that this go. It could have gone the Parodius route. I was sort of making fun of the tropes, but it's interesting that they that they went with a little bit more of the serious route and he decided to ju- to dive in and um, go for it with us. And I think, spoiler here, but I think it works really well and resonates with a lot of people. Yeah, and I think the fact that it, as we kind of alluded to earlier, that it wears so many influences on its sleeve, I don't think that's a knock against the game. You know, and I, I don't want to jump ahead to final thoughts here, but but definitely I think that ends up being one of its strong points. So I'm I tried to put down a story synopsis in here. Uh, <laughs> there's so much going on with the story in this game, and I there are a lot of shmups out there 
that have bog standard stories. And then there are some that have stories that are much deeper and more involved than probably what we even realize. You know, I've, I've come to find out since we did our Otomedius episode that apparently there's a lot of sort of background lore in the Gradius universe that informs the story and the lore present in Otomedius. And so there is so much more going on there than what we even realized. But as you play this game, you kind of see a lot of that stuff unfold. Um, but just as a basic kind of jumping off point with the story here, the planet has been attacked by an enemy force codenamed Green Orange, and they've taken over the Planetary Defense Force, which is a supercomputer, essentially. And the contingency plan was to have the Type A fighter known as Grapefruit sent out to deal with this Green Orange uh, force, but apparently after Green or uh, the initial assault on Green Orange, the Planetary Defense Force team lost contact with Type A. And so now you, as the pilot, have to go after Green Orange and take it down using either the Type B or the Type C ships. Yeah, it's definitely nice to see a shmup that walks the fine line between your bog norm, as you put it, and your bat crazy. Mm, right. Yeah, it it doesn't go full on um, full on Thunder Force. <laughs> That's more towards bat crazy as we start to get like you know three, four, and five. It just sort of builds upon its ridiculousness. But it's something that is a little parts of Gradius on here, but it's not going. It's like you are the only ship. It's serviceable, but not uh, not over the top. And I, I definitely like the, the little bit subdued take on this. Yeah, and, and one of the things that you find as you play the game and you get further in the game and then you access the game's second loop, which we'll talk about, you start to see more and more of the plot. And one of the clever things that they did was there's a demo of the game that you can download from their website. That apparently serves as a sort of story prequel to the game itself. So that actually sets up the events of the game and kind of alludes to the fall of the Type A and the fact that the Type A was just a contingency plan, and realistically they were planning on this planetary defense force to ward off the green-orange attack and not have to worry about it. What they weren't banking on was that the planetary defense supercomputer would be taken over, and so it's kind of an interesting uh, subversion of that, in a sense, where now, <laughs> now they're having to punt essentially. And so it's, uh, there's a lot going on story-wise. And I think it's interesting that they sort of allow it to unfold organically over the course of the game uh, and sort of spoon feed it to you a little bit at a time so that you can kind of take it in and deal with that in context of what's going on in the game, which is kind of a neat approach. Yeah. It reminds me in some ways of the story with Kamui and 
the way that they take the st storytelling. It wasn't designed for this, but now this enemy force is taking taking over again. This defense force, and now you have to go destroy it. When it, that wasn't the original intention, I mean, it it definitely has echoes of Kamui's plots, but it's it's still a good plot, and I like, definitely like the fact that it wasn't all up front and it's like sh you know shoot the core and that's it. Right. Need, need, it's nice to have a, a little bit more of a guiding light through the story, if as it were. So we talked a little bit about the story. Let's talk about how it's played. There are three primary fire buttons. The first is the main forward shot. The second is either a back or side shot. And the third shot is either a charge shot or lock-on shot. If you press fire one, two, and three, you can change between fighter and zero ranger modes. I want to talk a little bit about zero ranger mode here. Yeah, so basically the way that this plays out is you start the game off with just the forward shot. When you defeat the first boss, there are two orbs that uh, are presented to you, and you can choose one or the other. One of them will give you that back shot, and then the other will give you a side shot. And then after you defeat the second boss, you'll get the other weapon choice, of either the lock-on or the charge shot. Once you've done that, then by the time you beat the third boss, then you're given two additional choices, either a drill or a sword. And once you pick one of those two options, that's when your fighter has the ability, by pressing all three shot buttons or an optional fourth button in the config, to transform into the Zero Ranger mode, uh, so somewhat like a like a transformer going from a spaceship to a mech or a robot. He's a transformer. We're getting a copyright strike because of that. No, but I'm, maybe I'm, I'm kidding. No, but but maybe uh, maybe Zagnorch will will perk up when he hears that. Well, I hear you have to say the word th transformer three times, and he will appear. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that could very well be. Uh, no, uh, yeah, I get it. It's it's very much takes upon the transformation mecha that you'd see with Macross on there, and and a lot of times some of the initial robots, the um, in stage one that were there, reminded me a lot of the uh, I'm trying to think of the actual name of the one from uh, Gundam. Z oh sure, the um, Zampa. Uh, it's not Zampacto. Um, it starts it's with a, a Z. They're usually green. Green. I'm trying to think. But, yeah, or uh, Macross. SDF Macross. The, again, the anime um, influence is worn on the sleeve. And if we're talking about the different shots that are on there, shot one, which is standard for the ships, is always going to be the... I like to refer to it as the greater than shot because it looks like it's just a little bit... You know, uh, type 12 font or maybe type 15 font greater than signs that you're shooting at the ships. Oh, sure. And there, it, It's a neat effect. Don't get me wrong, but that, that's what it reminds me of. And then you choose the back shot or the side shot? I mostly went with the back shot. I started with the side shot because I liked the idea of that. And I kind of got along with that pretty well. But ultimately, I landed on the back shot just because there are so many, so many times when there are enemies that come up from the bottom of the screen or 
it makes sense to sort of go up further in the screen and take some stuff head on and then sort of double back and take stuff out with the back shot. So I kind of went for the back shot most of the time, I think. Yeah, I would assume as well. I went with the... Oh, I wanted to ask real quick, what type of what type of ship did you end up going with? Um, I played with both, but ultimately, I settled on the Type B as the favorite. The shorter and wider one. Yes. Yeah, I ended up going with that with the back shot as well. It made things a little bit easier to maneuver. I mean, so especially as you mentioned, with a lot of those popcorn enemies coming from the back. In order to quickly deal with those, because you still, what's nice about this is your forward, even though you're doing the back shot, you still have a little bit of a forward shot. Right. Especially useful for stage two in clearing out a lot of the popcorn enemies that you, you almost call them zubs, (laughs) in homage to uh, Gradius there. Uh, And then you, I'm assuming you chose the lock on. But I, did you, yeah, I did choose the lock on most of the time. I, I did mess with the charge shot a little bit, but I kind of had trouble figuring it out or you know getting a rhythm with it. So I didn't stick with it. But having watched some footage of some high level play with that weapon, I can say that it is an impressive, an impressive weapon, and it's something that I probably should explore. I think that I should say that the path that we followed would probably be the standard path. The, the options that most people would choose, such as the back shot and the, the lock-on shot and the Type 2 ship, is in a lot of the uh, uh, long plays or let's plays, whatever plays that I was viewing, that what seemed to be the standard configuration that people were going with. It seemed like the charge shot is something that could definitely be very powerful, but it requires more expertise and more experience in order to utilize. Yeah, I was watching a full run with commentary, and it was someone playing as a Type C, and instead of opting for the back shot and the the, uh, lock-on, they went for the side shot and the charge shot. And some of the charge shot stuff that they were doing was really impressive, kind of how they were how were they were utilizing it both as a shield and in both offensive and de- defensive ways, I'll say. And so they really knew how to get the most out of it. And it was an impressive thing to watch. And it's something that I think given a little bit more time, you know, I could f- kind of find my way in that direction. And I, I think to the game's credit that there really isn't one of these weapons that makes you feel you got to go this way, and then that's the best way, and we, everything else is just underpowered and it's done for shmup cred. Right. It, 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 it's, it seems very well balanced, that as long as you know what you're doing, you could get by with almost any combination that the game gives you. There are certainly some things that may feel more natural for playing through originally, but it's still a viable option. Right. Alright, so the game doesn't use a normal life or extend system. Instead, you have a single ship and can earn extra hits for your shield. The interesting thing about the shield is it seems that with, at least with flying type 2, you can sort of ram into stuff or just bump into stuff 
And as long as you give yourself a little bit of time to recover, like maybe a second or most, it won't actually count as a full hit against your shield. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting mechanic, because there was a couple of times where, uh, like in Stage 1, there's a section where you'll have some enemies, some drones coming up from the, the center bottom of the screen. And if you're not expecting them, or you kind of get in their way, they'll sort of jostle you around. And so if you get hit, you know, two, three times or whatever, then you'll actually take a shield hit and, you know, we'll be down one life, so to speak. But I thought that was kind of a nice touch where you weren't penalized immediately by just touching an enemy. Now, if you hit a bullet, that takes a life right away. But it was similar to Steel Vampire in that sense, where, you know, in that game, you could run up against enemies and just play bumper cars with them forever. Whereas in this game, at least it's uh, it's sort of a middle ground where you can run into them a couple times, but better back off and, and you know, sort of get, get your composure, so to speak. One thing I do want to point out with the power-up system is the choices that you're given up to the getting your mecha power-up are the only times that you power up your system. There's no other options or power-ups in the game. It's just what's presented to you after the bosses. Which is sort of neat. I, a lot of games you get that power up, in, or in Psycho games you get the power down. But a lot of them are, are much more play into the genre tra- trapping set forth by Konami and Gradius. So it's pretty refreshing in that sense. Did you like, like as well that you're not chasing power ups all across the screen? Yeah, I mean, it certainly made it so you could focus solely on the objective of. You know, taking out enemies and and surviving and and eventually, you know, you want to get to scoring and and that and there are certainly some some elements to that, but it definitely tightens the gameplay so that you're not you're not focusing on power ups or you know those kinds of elements, and it's strictly where am I at? What am I shooting at? Where do I need to be on the screen? And um, you know, where do I need to go next to make sure that I'm prepared for whatever the next enemy or enemy wave is? So, yeah, I, refreshing is a good word. I think it's it's a good approach that sort of takes it takes the a lot of the like you said the trappings of the genre and sort of strips that out to the core elements. But it's executed well, so in a way, it doesn't feel like it needs that. Yeah, I would have to say that the game itself is fairly short at being four st- stages and with the final boss fight. That is, if you don't play into the second loop. But as far as the game itself, there isn't a lot of fat on here, which is nice because it provides a very streamlined experience. I mean, th- this game was built for fans. And it shows on how well it's... The, the game is very well put together and plays well enough that you could take an expert there or you could take a novice on there and everyone's going to find something they like about this game. Yeah. I especially like the hidden secrets. Uh. Stored through there three per level. And the skill shots, like in the first stage when you have to 
defe defeat or <laughs> shoot at the poor bird, the poor orange bird, in order to gain the first secret. On other stage three, you had to lock onto a, a certain island as you were passing by and shoot it. Right. On stage two, you had to shoot all the S-type blocks in order to... Them. And it changed for when you went over from the first loop to the second loop. There was always something unique to do. I refer to them like skill shots. A lot of times, Mark MSX will say that STGs or shmups are very similar to the game of pinball. And I, I think that he's right with it in this case with Zero Ranger as it's just like pinball is something that can be approached by the novice or by a seasoned veteran and I, I like to think of these secrets as special skill shots it's like you're very good at shmups why don't you get all of the secrets in here show me your skills huh show me you can hit that drop target that's really hard to get in the back and then you can hit all the words to spell out Funhouse, and then get the ball inside. Um, oh shoot, I forget his name. Come on, Rusty from, but that's not the right name from Funhouse in order to trigger multi-ball. It, it's got, as I said earlier, a little something for everybody, which really strikes me in a hallmark of a great game. Yeah, and and I like how a lot of those things will be discovered organically. You know, like the bird, that that one orange bird in stage one, it's sort of making you wonder, okay, why is that bird orange? And then when you're just messing around, you know, holding down the fire button before before the enemies start coming up, and you happen to be underneath of that bird, all of a sudden there's a bonus token that comes out, and it's like, okay, I get where this is going. And so it's sort of that... Super Mario Brothers Stage 1-1 effect, where the game is teaching you how to play very subtly and very directly, but it's not holding your hand. It's just giving this stuff to you right away, and, you know, you play with it for a little bit, and you see, through repeated attempts, what it is that you're supposed to do, or, you know, that there's there's more here. There's There are layers underneath of the surface. You know, just like in stage two, that little island that you mentioned, I found that on accident just as I was playing through the stage. And then once I realized what I had done to trigger that bonus token, then I went back and, and replicated that again the next few times. And so then that just became part of how I routed through stage two was to try and grab that that bonus icon because it's like, well, I know it's there. I know I can get those points. So why not? So yeah, it's, you find a lot of this stuff organically. Some of it is some of the bonuses are a little bit more obtuse the way you find them. You know, there's one in, what is it? Stage four. I think it is after you get the, the mech transformation to, to zero ranger mode. There's one where, one of the bonuses is on the, the ceiling on this part where you're sort of scrolling to the left through these different barrages of enemies. And you pass through this area of boxes that kind of float up and down. And there's this little spot that looks a little bit different than the rest of the ceiling. And if you shoot that spot for a little bit, the S will drop down. And then right away you're accosted by an enemy crab 
you know, robo crab thing that's, that's right next to it. So you have to time it right in order to do it. But that's one of those things where you'll probably just discover that naturally as you're going through the game and, you know, you're holding down the fire button and you're shooting at stuff just so that you can kind of move through that area and then whip into place so you can start taking out that crab. That's, I love that stuff and how you'll discover a lot of these things on your own just by virtue of playing the game and progressing and getting further. And so I really, I really like that aspect of it. Yeah, there certainly is a lot to discover. As stage one, I was fighting against the mech types that are probably about halfway through. And then there's a wall of them where there are one comes down and they start shooting and then one comes down the middle and then one comes down the right. Usually it's like left, left, middle, right. But I found if I was too far to the right, then they went right, middle, left. It was interesting to see some of the variations in the game playing with your expectations and what you're trying to route through. Did you notice that as well, enemies changing positions depending upon where you were? Yeah, that was one of the first things that I noticed in Stage 1 with those three mechs, is it's not consistent. And so I couldn't just be at a specific point on the screen at all times or, or leading up to that point, or at least it didn't feel like I could because I was trying to also take out all the smaller drones that were coming in. And so if I would sweep back and forth to try and take all of those out, then, you know, my position on the screen was going to be relative somewhere toward the center, but either center right or center left, depending on how I come into that and sort of sweep back and forth to take out those drones. And so that always affected whether or not the first mech was going to come down on the left-hand side of the screen or on the right-hand side of the screen, then I would have to decide, am I going to try and get right down underneath and into the middle there where I can take them out, or do I wait and take out, say, the middle one first and then kind of double back and try to take out that first one as it's flying away and not shooting at me anymore? So... Yeah, I was also impressed by the reactiveness of the mid-bosses. <clears throat> there are different variations of what the uh, Vic Viper <laughs> clone <laughs> or imitator can do on there. I noticed with the rings from the Ripple Laser that were very cool. You could, as soon as they were fully expanded, you could fly through them. Right. <clears throat> Sometimes it would try and do a sort of like a ring shot flying out of there. And the other things, too, such as the upcoming enemies would almost certainly be in the background. So you could get a... Stage 1 really highlights this. Is that You see the little uh, popcorn enemies fly in the background, and the next thing you know, you're getting warnings from behind that enemies are coming. And they, they are the exact same formations that you just saw, in, albeit larger this time from below. Did you notice that as well? Yeah, and there are little touches like that that are kind of neat too, like um, the the Gradius ship, you know, the Vic Viper wannabe Arc Adder. You actually see it earlier in the stage, kind of down on the lower plane, shooting down something and picking up its options. And my understanding is, if you have the lock-on shot, when you go back to stage one in the second loop, you can actually uh, destroy those before it even has the chance to pick them up. 
and that can essentially rank up that ba- that fight and make make the the arc adder more aggressive. And the it's also nice to see with the behind shot with the art 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 typo. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that it, it tries to block you, but you can actually get behind it. And if you have have the behind shot, you can just decimate it. Did you were you able to get behind the R typo? I was, but uh, I, apparently the positioning is tricky. You can't just go right on top of it. Uh, you kind of have to, I don't know, position yourself a little bit different. I watched a playthrough where I saw somebody jump in behind it and take it out pretty quickly, but there is apparently some some nuance that you have to have in terms of where you position your ship relative to it so that you can take it out because I got destroyed <laughs> several times when I tried to do that. Yeah, it didn't t- it that's one of those bosses I think is the first true stumbling block when you start the game. And you can get past stage one or at least past the arc adder. Most people will get to stage two. But as soon as you get to the R typo, it's your first stumbling block and telling you that, hey, this this game is starting to get hard now. You're going to have to start memorizing some patterns if that's what you need to get by. Right. And the, one of the things, kind of going back to the, the game teaches you sort of how to do things, is you get an indication as you're fighting our typo. If you're shooting at it and a lot of your shots are hitting that force pod thing that it has, you can sort of see it crackling with energy. And if you shoot at it too much, it will fire out this giant wave of, you know, large energy orbs at you. And so one of the things that I had to do with my playthroughs is adjust my strategy a little bit so that I would fire at the, the ship and try to sort of be on the side a little bit so that I wasn't directly hitting the the force pod because, of, of course, that's just going to absorb my shots. And then once I started to kind of see it crackle with electricity, then I would back off and not fire for a few seconds until it sort of calmed down. And then I could re-engage and, uh, you know, do it that way. Otherwise, I would have to weave through all of those energy orbs while also dealing with the other stuff it was throwing at me. And that's a lot harder. So, you know, that's one of those strategic things that the, that the game kind of hints at you that maybe you want to, you know, find another approach. Yeah. And speaking of other approaches in there, I think that sort of neat that the stage two boss, as it's flying up, you can get right behind it. And so if you're fast enough, you can take out the, uh, one of the rotating discs with your behind shot or rear shot you know, and make that fight a lot easier. Oh, interesting. I did not try that. Yeah, I think it, I'm not sure if it was Moglar, but I watched a uh, super play out there on YouTube. Also, I think it was Moglar who had it, but he was giving out, like, you have to do this in loop one, you have to do this in loop two. It was very well done. Of course, they, they always make it look so simple. All you have to do is just dodge all these projectiles and don't get hit. That's it. You <laughs> <Yeah>. win. <laughs> you know, it's like Dark Souls for dummies. You know, don't get hit, get good. <laughs> you're all, you're <laughs> done. Yeah. But no, it was interesting to see different strategies in play. 
on how those will work. I, I definitely saw him get up there. I tried it myself, but it does fire back there and trying, like with the giant fly swatter, trying to get you out of there quickly. Because it, it, they program the game so that way it knows it wants to remove you from just cheesing the boss. Speaking of right. bosses, is what what did you think of the stage? I like stage one. I thought it reminded me a lot of the like a combination of the stage one boss of Ketsui mixed with a little bit of the stealth fighter maybe from UN Squadron. It was it was a good mix and seemed to be a good boss for getting you adapted to what was to come. That was a standout. Stage two was okay. I really did like the stage three boss and then the skull boss. I can't remember if that was stage four or where that came into play. Yeah. It's interesting because the stage one boss, I feel, is generally speaking a relatively easy fight once you sort of understand the pattern. Um, It it threw me at first, but it didn't take me long to kind of get a get a rhythm with it and understand how I was to approach it. The stage two boss, I remarked several times on my stream that it was a jerk and I hated it uh, <laughs> because once I got past our typo, then the stage two boss was the wall. You know, that's where I would either run out of, of hits or I would run down to just the one and then I would get to stage three and choke. You know, I refer to that as like the, the the cave progression, as I've come to know. I'm playing games like Ketsui or playing um, Espaluda. I'm playing um, DOJ. It's where you start. The first level is really easy and gets you to accustomed to the game's mechanics. Stage two, by the time you hit about halfway, that's when it, they really start hitting you. In stage three, it just becomes really, really hard. And I felt like the game followed that type of progression to a T. Yeah. You know, the stage two boss, I felt was interesting because it didn't... And maybe it's just that I haven't played enough games to know, but it didn't feel like a like a trope that it was pulling on necessarily. You know, it felt relatively original even though some of the things it was doing in terms of bullet patterns and stuff was similar to what I've seen in other games, but the boss itself seemed like it was, you know, relatively original. Uh, so I kind of appreciated it from that aspect, but yeah, I think overall the the boss fights in the game are are pretty pretty cool, pretty exciting, and a focal point of the game in a lot of ways, especially once you get to uh, the boss that you fight just before the uh, you you get the weapon that allows you to transform into the Zero Ranger mode. That's a cool fight, and it's one of those things where, of course, you learn as you go along, and like I said kind of earlier, where you're sort of picking up bits of the story as you go along, that's where you learn that that boss is actually Type A. That's Grapefruit. And so... The, the original ship that got sent out to fight against Green Orange ends up becoming your adversary just because it was taken over, and then you have to take it out. So it's kind of an interesting twist, but that was that's a really cool boss fight. 
One of the other things I really appreciate about this game is I like Don Maku games, I really do. But th this this is more in the realm of your traditional shooter than a Don Maku game. The neat thing about it, though, is it, it it's sped up. It, it's not <laughs> nearly as slow as our type. It, it feels like a modern STG in the vein of our type should. Yeah, the the pacing is really good. You know, it definitely doesn't sit around and wait too long between any anything. You know, there are small lulls, but they're planned and they're nice to kind of give you an opportunity to regroup after a wave or several waves of enemies so you can sort of figure out what you're going to do next or move to a safe spot on the screen or kind of determine what weapon you're going to be using next. You know, right. but they're not they're not lengthy spots where you're just sitting around waiting for another enemy wave. You know, they're just very short interludes that are you know a couple of seconds and then boom, you're right back into the action. I, I think a good shmup should be like a good roller coaster, right? You you shouldn't have all action all the time or it would be too frantic. You need your downtime periods as well in order to achieve a good balance and have a good ride or an, or a good game. And I, I think this game does it admirably. I, I don't feel like I'm ever fully like, rushed. I mean, so frantic. I don't know what the heck is going on. Or I feel like, gee, this is so slow, I'm, I'm bored. And I think that that's the main complaint why people more go towards Damaku games is because they saw these shmups were, or SDGs, were slower paced and they were boring people. Were, like our type, a lot of people like our type, but it's... It's a very slow-moving game, and I, I, a lot of the younger players are not gravitating towards that. They're gravitating towards Cave and Damaku, because they are a faster-paced game, or, or Toho. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this kind of scratches that itch and allows for a more frenetic style of play, while also sticking to a lot of the tried-and-true formulas of more traditional pre Don Maku shoot 'em ups. You know, there's a little bit of what what you could call manic shoot 'em up era stuff, early to mid nineties, latter day toe plan, psycho rising style where it's not quite bullet hell, but they sure are throwing a lot at ya and it's coming pretty quick. Uh and so it's it's a good combination of the old school style with better pacing and you know, a sense of understanding your audience where they know that you're playing these games because they're a little bit more of a thrill ride. And so you're trying to keep them engaged the whole time. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of, did you, did you ever watch Futurama? Uh-uh. Oh, Futurama. They're talking about uh, the main character, Fry, is gets cryogenically frozen and comes back in the year 3000. And they're talking about this new form of baseball. And it's like, yeah, they, they sped it all up. And he says, baseball, baseball wasn't, didn't need to be sped up. It was good the way it was. You know, stops for a second and thinks and says, hmm, they finally sped it up. So, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's like one of those lines. I love our type to death and think it's a great game. Definitely. You know, one of the genre-defining shmups that everyone should at least try. But it, it is a very slow game. 
and it's hard to keep people engaged, especially newer players who are used to more fast-paced games. And I, th as we talked about, I think this is a wonderful job of, uh, like John and Cash, of walking the line. <laughs> yeah. So, were there anything else that stood out to you? Anything that you said, oh, that's impressive, or i seen this? Uh, I think I think a lot of it has to do, and I guess we can talk about it when we talk about the graphics, but how they do so much with so little. Yeah, I, I think the, as we'll talk to in just a second, the game's visual style does it a lot of favors by proposing limitations and then forcing developers to work within there. Had it, had it gone with a full color palette, I don't think it would have been as impactful. It may have cost them some sales, and the way people that don't like the art style and just take a look at the screenshot and go, uh, no. Right. But our zone, this is not. Or Virtual <laughs> Boy, this is not. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the graphics here. As we talked about, the graphics are very unique, and they use a color scheme with multiple shades of green and orange. So, you know, Halloween or pumpkin style, which, as previously mentioned, is going to throw some people off on there, but I, again, I think that limiting the color palette gives you a lot more direction on how things should look. It really looks like a cross between an 8-bit and a 6 well, more so like a 16-bit game. Let's say, or maybe even 16 and 32 is a lot of the parallax effects of warping, etc. Like maybe an early Saturn game or an early 90s arcade game. Yeah, this is this is what I kind of refer to as the twelve bit look. It looks graphically more impressive than what you can do on an eight bit system, but because the sprites are very simple and they've they're not overly detailed, they've got detail in them, but they also don't have a lot of the depth that you would see from uh, you know some of the sixteen and thirty two bit era games. They still kind of retain that, I'll say flat, um, you know, more flat look of an 8-bit type of, of sprite. And so a lot of the a lot of the assets in the game, even though they're they're well designed and they're well animated, because they all sort of have that outline effect on them and all the detail is, is surface level and it doesn't really give it much of a of a 3D relief kind of look to it like some of the other games. It ends up looking like it, it ends up looking older than what it is. Uh, it's very similar to Shovel Knight in that sense because it's patterned after a lot of NES platformers but the graphics are obviously beyond what an NES could do. So it doesn't quite look 16-bit, but it's definitely better than 8-bit. And so that's why I say it sort of has that 12-bit look. Now, a lot of the effects are definitely coming more from the 16 and 32-bit eras. When you're talking about multiple layers of parallax scrolling, you're talking about 
all these warping effects that it's doing and distortion and things like that. A lot of that stuff you're not going to see on an older console, but the base aesthetic, I'll say, is what I refer to as a 12-bit look, just because it kind of exists in the ether somewhere between that 8 and 16-bit realm. I have to say that the, one of the biggest strengths for this game is that it can be busy without looking so. Ghost Blade, as we're playing through it, it had so much choices with the color scheme that a lot of the times the bullets would get lost, and I, I think that still holds true. I mean, look at uh, Last Hope Pink Bullets. It, it's it, it's a, sort of like a bad joke of shooting them up, sorry, STG, that where did that come from? Oh, it's this bullet that I couldn't see or blended in so well with the background. And this game does not suffer from that. And I think a large portion of that is due to its limited color palette. You have clear direction on where the shots are coming from. Not once did I feel like it was the game's fault instead of my fault for not reading the board and my position correctly. Right. Yeah, and I think that that slightly more, again, I'll say flat, uh, look of the sprites and everything being outlined and well-defined helps with that because then bullets and missiles and projectiles and things are all very clear and easy to see what they are and that they are a threat. And so it definitely makes reading the screen a lot easier than a game where, as you say, like Ghostblade, where there's so much going on that it's a little bit harder to to get a, a bead on where it is you are or where the threats really are. And I talked about this a little bit with Mark MSX and as we're going through it, saying it's really interesting to see the, well, the color of shmups, the color SDGs, and what's used for what, and what is giving direction to the player. And I, it seemed like he was really interested in running with it, so I'll be real interested to hear his take on this. And I'm certain Zero Ranger will come up as an example of doing more with less. Yeah, and I think that's a, that was a specific design choice that system erasure made when they developed this game and i appreciate the fact that they were able to get so much out of just two colors and you know various shades of those two colors you know i think of it i was trying to come up with a word because when you think about the game boy for example you know it's sort of four shades of green and it's so it's essentially monochromatic well, what do you call it when it's monochromatic, but with two colors and just multiple shades of those two colors? It's not bichromatic because that's something else, but that's essentially what you have is is two monochromatic palettes uh, put together and just sort of forming this interesting mixture of these different shades of orange and these different shades of green. And then, of course... You have black and, and white uh, as sort of your all colors or, you know, both colors mixed and then no color uh, kind of a thing. And it, it really, it's a very, it's a very clean look, but it also is, I don't know, it's got a, an interesting atmosphere about it. You really have to make sure that your sprites are clearly defined. As mentioned in this game, just like playing Gradius or 
I think it's called Nemesis on the uh, Game Boy. What's the actual name on the Game Boy? Yeah, Nemesis. Nemesis, yeah. <laughs> and to make sure that then how they had to make sure everything was clearly defined on the Game Boy or, or even looking at the uh, the powerhouse of color here with the ZX Spectrum. <laughs> and how every everything there had to be clearly defined. It, it's really interesting on some of the artistic choices that had to be done because it couldn't be replicated with the color palette that was in there. And I, I think that we should visit this and take a look at this maybe with a Game Boy shmup for the year 2021. That would be something fun to try. Absolutely. And I'm certain you have a good suggestion for us. I do. All right. So we talked a little bit about the graphics and how well they were done. Let's talk about the sound. The sound for me was the highlight of the game. It's one of those things that no matter what I was doing or how frustrated I was, it was something that constantly was playing in my head and then I, it was running through my head when the game was turned off. It's so well written that it sticks with you. And I, I think Mark MSX put it best by saying the soundtrack of a game has to be good because you're going to be putting 50 hours into this. If you're not driven mad by the soundtrack... You've got a winning game. Yeah, and this is one of those things where a lot of times with indie games, you'll be able to find or extract the music out of the game itself. I always like to have the tracks so that I can have them as background music for the podcast. Even if I wasn't going to use the the tracks as background music for the podcast, I still would want the music so I could listen to it. So I actually bought the soundtrack on Bandcamp because it's up there. And that was all done by by Eero, or as he's known online, E. Brosgi. And it's an excellent soundtrack. A lot of good tunes, memorable tunes, a- atmospheric, you know, interesting stuff going on, sets the mood. You know, stage one has a real sort of epic feel to it with the way that it kind of brings you in and kind of has that pump you up effect and then stage two is a little bit more low-key and one of the things one of the effects or the things that i really liked was the effect with the boss music it had that super mario brothers effect where you know as you're playing a super mario brothers game and then you get to where you get down to a count of 100 the music speeds up what sort of does that here with the boss fights, when you whittle the boss down to a certain amount of health that sort of triggers their final phase, the music speeds up, but it also does this weird thing where the music then starts to sound slightly off-key, like it goes it goes up a couple of steps, but it doesn't quite get there, so everything sounds a little bit flat, but it's on purpose, of course, because it's a way of signaling that the boss is that you're almost there, that you've you've you're getting close to taking it out, uh, and so it's a really neat audio cue to to sort of give you that uh, that signal that hey you're in the home stretch here. You know, I, I think about uh, the original Dompach and how you've got that announcer that. When you whittle the boss down to uh, 
a certain amount of health. You know, he kind of does that, just a couple more shots. You know, it's kind of like that in a sense. But without the announcer to do that, it's a, it's, it's a musical cue instead that lets you know you're almost there. This is, this is it. You just gotta, you just gotta get through this last little bit and then you'll be done. Yeah, I I think that's also was probably a, a design choice because you can't have if the ship were to start flashing that would be distracting. You can't have the ships blink or or, or and with the limited color palette you can't have it like change to red or something other color from there. Right. So you are sort of left with the music. One of the interesting things that came up is I was taking a quick look at how this was critically reviewed is after the UN squadron, of course, now I'm really <laughs> interested to see what other reviewers may think. And one of them compared the sound and the gameplay to undertale. Yeah. And I thought that was an apt comparison. Yeah. I saw that as well. And it's, it is an apt comparison in the sense that undertale has a very minimalist graphic approach, probably more so, I would say, than than what Zero Ranger does. But both games have what you could consider to be very lush and exquisite soundtracks accompanying. So they definitely take that minimalist visual approach, but really put a lot of weight behind the music experience that sort of undercurrents the whole thing. And to great effect, I would say. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Is there a track that stands out for you? Uh, well, there are several. One of the things that I said is on my streams earlier in the month was that uh, the the short little ditty for the title screen is that I should grab that track and make it the notification noise for when I get a voicemail on my phone or something. But... I really like that epic feel of stage one and I like the boss music. You know, it's, you wouldn't think that piano would make for engaging boss fight music, uh, in this kind of action oriented game, but it really does. And of course there are other elements in there as well, but, uh, but the piano is the main melody line. And so it's a, it's an interesting way of doing it. I also really like stage two. Sorry, I was going to say, yeah, you expect it to be uh, your hard rocking guitars out there, your big drums to really get you pumped up, and instead you're taken back by the piano. And I, I really does do a good job of pulling the action along. I definitely agree with you that the boss music is my standout. And it's really get, gets the action flowing. And I, I got to try this now that we meant to, but I'm, I'm going to try muting the next time I play the game just to, I'm sure it'll be a huge difference, but I'm a little curious on uh, how much of the music actually plays into the experience. Is it more like 80, 20, or is it going to be 90, 10? Yeah, I, I really think that, if you separate the music from the game and play it without those tracks, you definitely have a diminished experience. It's still a well-designed and fun and engaging game, but I, I think this is one of those games where I would encourage people not to just mute it and throw a podcast or you know a CD on in the background or whatever. 
but to actually listen to the game. Because, as I said, you know, you've got those audio cues, like the boss music change or, you know, some other things throughout the course of the game that really help to frame the experience. Yeah, I initially, my wife and son were playing a a game nearby and I didn't want to distract them. So I started off with the headphones and I was so glad I did. The game was incredible playing with headphones on. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go from amazing soundtrack and to scoring the, the other type of scoring. <laughs> let's talk about green and orange to start with the base game mode. Scoring in green orange revolves around a multiplier that can be found in the top right corner of the screen. And I believe it goes up to 6.4, doesn't it? And then it says nice or something like that? Yes. The multiplier increases as enemies are destroyed. The bigger the enemy, the bigger the increase. And it can be maintained by hitting enemies, absorbing bullets with a charge shot, or locking onto enemies. Not attacking for a long period of time causes it to rapidly decrease. In fighter form, the multiplier caps at 6.4, as talked about. In mech form, it can be overloaded to a max of 12.8, but will decrease much faster. Note that you do not need to stay in mech to maintain the overloaded multiplier, but you cannot increase it past 6.4 in fighter form either. <clears throat> yeah, I, I thought that was a nice touch to let you know you had done something well. It's found it easiest to perform by hitting popcorn enemies. What did you, was your experience with this? You know, I didn't really pay too much attention to the multiplier. I wasn't focused as much on scoring uh, in in this game over the course of the month as I normally would be. I think mostly because I was trying for survival, and specifically with white vanilla, I was trying to get a clear. So I was less focused on the the, the multiplier. I wasn't a hundred percent sure how it worked. But it's good to know that it's that literally just hitting enemies or locking onto enemies and things will kind of keep your your multiplier chain going. So actually, that's something that I could go back and figure out maybe some different ways to route through the game so that I could kind of keep that multiplier higher over the course of the game. Yeah, it's multiplier juggling for green orange. You want to max out the multiplier as fast as you can to keep it from decreasing. And then you want to slowly shave away at enemies' health when things get slower. Time your shots to keep them from destroying so that way you can milk your way on next to the next high wave of enemies. Yep. The other thing to keep in mind for is the SE or special bonus. All their locations are fixed. But they, I refer to like little skill shots. They're they're not required, but they definitely are nice to add to the score when they're there and are nice little surprises on there. The other thing I found is the game likes you to, like Katsui, to point blank or get through kill enemies as quickly as possible. And completing sections fast will cause golden enemies to appear. They're worth more points than the regular ones. Basically, if, if you see something that enemies are mostly green, and you see an enemy that's orange or golden, destroy it and you'll get more points out of there. There are, I remember stage one, there's always that, that mech. And then there, oh, Zaku, I believe is the name I was thinking of earlier for the Gundam. They were the ones with the jetpacks. Oh. 
there's there are a couple pretty much i think there's a golden version of almost every standard enemy and think of any game and you think of any exceptions uh not specifically there i mean there are a couple of golden enemies that are different from other types but yeah i think there's probably a golden variant of most everything <clears throat> would you like to talk about white vanilla and how that differs yeah, that's, uh, that's where I spent most of my time during the month. So White Vanilla is um, apparently more of a score attack mode. Uh, and we should mention that we're the information on scoring we're taking directly from the shmups.wiki Zero Ranger page. Uh, so I'm not sure who, who did the write-up for Zero Ranger, but that's uh, something that Mark MSX spearheaded, and there have been a lot of people contributing to that, and it's really cool to see that go up. So... Thank you to the Shmup community at large uh, who have been com contributing to the Shmup's wiki site because there's a lot of good information there. Um, but White Vanilla consists of a, a remix of various segments from every stage in the game. And so I mentioned earlier on a fresh install, you unlock that by reaching a game over in Green Orange for the first time. Uh, in White Vanilla, the multiplier is fixed increasing based on how well the player performs during each segment. And then when each segment is completed, you'll be given a grade on, on three criteria, hits, time, and destruction. And all criteria are ranked individually. The higher the grade, the more the multiplier increases. Uh, grades go from E, which gives you a 0.5 times increase, to Z, which gives you a one-time increase. Uh, multiplier max is at 16 times in this mode, resets back to one, one times at the start of the next stage, and then between stages there are bonus levels for increased score. Uh, that was one of the aspects that I thought was pretty cool about White Vanilla was the bonus stages in between. A uh, player cannot lose lives in those levels, but they automatically end if you take a single hit. You're limited to a maximum of five continues in White Vanilla, and it's kind of cool how it does that is it shows the white vanilla flower. And so for each of for each continue that you use, it's like removing a petal from the flower. And so it's kind of a nice symbolic thing. The EX boss or the sort of true last boss, if you will, in the white vanilla mode can only be fought if you reach it with without using a continue which I managed to do a couple of times during the course of the month. And again, speed killing or point blanking is, is going to help. Uh, not only does that contribute to your destruction rank, but completing the sections early makes the screen scroll faster, and that is key to obtaining the speed zone achievement in the final segment of Stage 4. Uh, there are some segments that have been altered slightly, and so they're not exactly the same as what you what you find in Green Orange. And I found that to be true, playing through both modes. And the EX boss uses scoring mechanics from Green Orange, and uh, apparently this is the only place where boss milking is feasible. For every other section, the time bonus will overshadow any milking. And dying to this boss still counts as a clear. So that's an interesting thing. So technically... I got a clear in white vanilla, even though I didn't beat the boss. So having played both modes, 
what's your take? What do you like green orange or do you like white vanilla better? Um, I mean, right now I think I like white vanilla better only because I found the progression to be a lot faster, which was nice for me to actually feel like I was accomplishing something. I also like the, the pacing of it and the cool thing where it's all these different bits from different stages in the game and, you know, you're sort of warping back and forth between different spots. And so it feels very frenetic and very fast paced. It's not really that much more fast paced than Green Orange, but just enough with all that extra kind of whiz bang uh, sort of stuff in there that it really makes it feel like it's just go, go, go. And uh, there's barely a moment to breathe other than when you beat the boss of a level and you're choosing your weapon, uh, you know, there's very, very little downtime. And so it, it keeps you on your toes, but it also still feels fair and like you can really progress through it. You know, it, it's definitely easier than Green Orange. Yeah, and it's. I have to say that it was interesting to see that's the where most people gravitated is to white vanilla, and that was a mode that was added recently, right? Yeah, yeah. It's one of those funny things where we didn't plan it this way, and I didn't realize that the DLC was coming. It just happened to be that white vanilla DLC released something like two or three weeks before we started playing the game. And I have to say, I was the opposite. I'm probably the odd man out. I preferred orange-green. I think partly because I really like R-Type, and it reminded me a lot of the memorization. Okay, i got to find the route and put myself here in order to get through here. Then i got to switch over to here and hit, hit this. Uh, it, it really scratched the R-Type memorization itch for me and, and forced me to really learn the game. So I, I was playing it more like a, a cave game. I was trying to learn learn the routes and learn where all the enemy placements are than, you know, a fast-paced joyride that is white vanilla. Sure, that makes sense. Oh, it should also mention that the white vanilla mode is not paid DLC. It is free DLC when you buy the game. Correct. All right, so we've given a lot of our impressions of the game. Let's move on to some of the RFGen community. We'll start off with Zoido. I'd recommend to play through Green Orange first, credit feeding, before playing White Vanilla because Green Orange has a lot of cool surprises to offer you, and you might spoil this experience by playing White Vanilla first. And it's definitely something that, that we didn't touch upon, but it's a very valid point you want. Part of the experience of playing this game is getting the full story of this, and experience from there, and if you're going through everything pretty quickly, you might miss or, or <laughs> I never thought I'd be saying this sentence, but uh, be spoiled for a shmup story. <laughs> right. He goes on to say, green orange is tough and you have to earn your credits, but it's absolutely worth the effort in my opinion. <laughs> I signed up for La, La Calice Special 2020, so I'll be mostly playing white vanilla throughout the month, but I plan on playing some credits on green orange as well. Final thoughts? Play Zero Ranger. If I had a shmup to recommend to somebody who doesn't play shmups very frequently, Zero Ranger would definitely be one of my picks. It has a lot of surprises, replay, replay value, 
and there's a fantastic pixel graphics, fantastic music, fantastic stages, fantastic boss battles. Well, I agree, it is definitely fantastic. The fact that you have to earn your credits by grinding through the game makes it more accessible for newcomers because you feel like you're beating the game even by credit feeding. <clears throat> it's still very challenging for experienced players. Two loops is pretty hard. I agree. I, I think that the mechanic, and this was also within Devil Engine, which hopefully gets its legal uh, issue sorted out, had as well, where even though your every run felt like you are making progress to an overall goal, and, and that is needed for g gamers or players to stick through a schmutt these days. Do you believe the same thing, Pro? Or Yeah, I mean, I think if, if a game is too difficult to where you hit a wall early and you never feel like you can progress beyond that, it, it becomes very discouraging. And realistically, it, it's, it's a matter of practice and, you know, just keep keep at it so that you can figure it out but yeah you know there's a there's a point at which a game stops respecting a player's time and uh so i think this is a game that that respects your time well with both modes because you can still feel like you're you're progressing he goes on to say vanilla mode is a bit easier and maybe more attractive to for new players if you're looking for a clear but it's still a lot of fun to play for score also for experienced players all this makes Zero Ranger not only a fantastic shooter, but a fantastic video game. You should buy Zero Ranger now. It's fantastic. I think he wins by using the word fantastic the most times in a paragraph. But <laughs> I, I completely agree. It's fantastic. And uh, it should be tried by more people. And I wish it would get the exposure, uh, the same exposure as Undertale. Yeah. We had uh, a new member named Monster Closet jump in and say, I don't know how to insert an image on here, uh, on the forum, uh, but my top score has so far been 50,222, and I got to 1-2. I'm using Type-C. I haven't got to play as much as I would have liked, but the continues are pretty generous, so I've seen some stuff further. I really like the color palette of this game, and I keep being surprised how much detail they were able to pack in without compromising the colors. And yeah, that really echoes kind of what we were talking about before, of how they were able to do so much with so little, and still make something that's visually striking and interesting. De definitely a highlight of the game. Now, this next comment I was reading initially as Gravybeard, so I apologize. <laughs> It should be gravy bread. <laughs> so his thoughts were my best single credit runs go on WV or white vanilla green orange so far. Obviously no killer scores here, but every run I seem to get just like a few seconds further. So I'm very much hooked. feel like white vanilla might be my favorite of the two. <clears throat> and yeah, you mentioned it definitely respects the player's time and gives you the, oh, just one more go of you know, it, it's, it, I almost hate to say it, but it, it seems very mobile, where, where you, you get a little bit something more on here, without getting into loot boxes, but that's sort of the way that you design a mobile game these days, is to get the player just enough so that they want to keep playing, right? It, it's without having to have them pay um, Z-Bucks. <laughs> right. And I, I I definitely agree with Gravy Brett. It's 
good at keeping your attention. Yeah. And finally, we had Cork, who uh, chimed in and says, I think the limiting palette forces graphic designers to be more creative. I like how this game looks. I like the gameplay, too. I think it's all done well, but I'm just not seeing this as being one of my favorite shmups at this point. I can't quite put my finger on why. There's still 12 days to change my mind. And of course, that was during the course of the month. Uh, he says, I've been playing mostly green orange. Here are my scores so far. I think I'm going to play a little more white vanilla and see how that goes. So then, of course, later in the month, he says, you're right, Metal Fro. I've been playing white vanilla recently, and it feels more balanced. I was kind of commenting that I felt like white vanilla was uh, felt a little bit more balanced to me. And he says, I like the scoring bonus stages. The whole warping around to different parts of different stages is interesting. Every time you get past the furthest part in your runs, uh, in your past runs, you're thinking, now where am I warping to? Well, I'm glad he found a mode that worked for him. And, and again, it seems that White Vanilla seems to be the overall winner here. I would love to see this idea of doing a remix put forth into a newer Gradius game. And I know that they sort of did these things with uh, the Gradius for the, for the Wii, and there was a little bit in, involved with... The, Gradius Five, and some way, I mean, where they where they reuse stuff from the past, but it's and the, there was one with uh, is it Gradius Three? Which one's the one that uh, if you get hit by the emboss, you have to go back and replay gra- the first stage of the original Gradius? Oh, I don't or remember. Right off the top of my head, which one that was? But I, I would love to see like a uh, not so much like a, a, a super Gradius maker. <laughs> <laughs> or, or something in there, but something in line where maybe a Gradius randomizer or something like that, where each one is, is different, where everyone's super familiar with the game mechanics and the, it, it gives you a unique experience or a Gradius roguelike in some ways. It's, huh. That would be something fun to try. Yeah, that could be interesting. So we talked about everyone doing their best to try and get through and get high scores. What are our high scores for the month? Well, as I would have expected, uh, Zoido ended up getting the high score on both modes. On Green Orange, he had 129,247 points. And on White Vanilla, he ended up with 894,474 so kudos to Zoido for that. I know I was just over 800,000 on my best run on White Vanilla. So he definitely was able to optimize that a little bit better and uh, come out with the top score. Congratulations. Yes, but thank you to all of our participants for the course of the month. I was glad that we had so many participants that they were able to find so many unique points of view. It was... I thought that somebody might actually say this shmup isn't for me and just sort of drop out of it, but it was interesting to see the change in perspective. I, initially, when I started playing this, uh, I was sort of in, in that camp too of looking. And yeah, I realized a lot of people like this, but I don't know if it just doesn't look like it's for me. And, and I, I suppose that I should bring that to my thought and final thoughts on this. It, it's something that doesn't outwardly scream at you. It's very meek in, in its presentation. It, it's not doing the carnival barker to get you 
get your attention. It's definitely something worth trying. And even if the color palette seems throwing you off, wait for a Steam sale and buy it for uh, about five bucks or so and play it that way. It really is one of those shmups that is very well polished and seems to have something for everybody. I love the music of it. The graphics seemed a little bit of an odd choice at first, but they definitely work for the game. As we mentioned, less is more. In this case, the different weapon combinations, while not always suitable for my playstyle, seem to be able to make it work, so that means the game is well balanced. I didn't have any shots that came out of nowhere and destroyed me. I felt like the game was always playing fair. It was nice to see the different modes appeal to different people. All in all, a very well-written package. I'm not certain that this game would appear on my top 5, or maybe top 10. It might be at the upper end of my top 10 shmups of all time. Probably because most of my stuff would be cave. Sorry, I am <laughs> really, really like cave games, that, and uh, Crimson Clover. <clears throat> but it, it, it's definitely one of those shmups that everybody should at least try there it, it will definitely surprise you yeah this is this is something that i i knew going in that i was going to like but what i came away with is that i i actually think i like it more than i realized or anticipated that i would I, again i don't know if it would be in my top 10 of all time but certainly this is a top 10 pc shmup uh, I don't think there's any question about that. Um, you know, when you talk about when you put it up against games like Crimson Clover and Rolling Gunner and stuff and, like that. Yeah, Deep Space Waifu, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, everybody has their thing, but this. <laughs> but this game, it got its hooks in me, and. I enjoyed playing through it quite a bit. You know, you watch my streams and you see my frustrations and, and that sort of thing. And, and that's all part of it. But at the end of the day, this is a really good game and I really like it. And it's one that I do want to go back to. I Because I, I want to get that, that full white vanilla clear. I want to be able to beat the final boss, the, the true last boss or the EX boss in white vanilla. And I would like to see at least the end of the first loop in green-orange. The second loop looks pretty difficult, but, you know, it would be it would be fun to get to the point where I could play through and actually reach that. Uh, and maybe even, maybe even get reasonably far. You know, I have to say that when I first started, or agreed to start a Schmutt podcast with you, I was under the impression that almost everything had been done on the consoles, and the consoles were the king. However, the more that I'm seeing come out of the doujin scene, it appears that the doujins have really picked up the torch, and are now the premieres. I mean, Cave will always be Cave, and R-Type will always be R-Type. But if you're looking for really good put-together games, or good put-together STGs, and you're looking for something that will innovate and surprise you. The PC is the go-to platform. And it's being inundated right now by so many great shmups. It seems like every other day there's something that's homage that's coming out that looks really interesting. We just talked about one that surprised Mark, Super XYX. Yep. 
and it, it's or looking at uh, what, what's that one that's coming out at the end of this month here? The one that's uh, uh it, or I, I guess you could say Crimson Clover was one that's finally coming. Rolling Gunner was PC based on that. There's just so much good Dojin games coming out that people should enjoy and really into it. It's it can be a little bit daunting to to go through there, but it's really use a, a, a phrase here embarrassment of riches on the PC right now. Yeah, there, there's so much good stuff, and you know I think that's one of the one of the reasons why it's good that we can highlight a game like this because at this point because there's so much that falls under the shmup tag on steam that you can kind of get lost in the stuff can kind of get lost in between uh some of the more middling games that are on that platform whereas this is one that deserves your time and is well worth a look and is well worth the purchase price and i would say if you're if you're a fan of the genre and you probably are if you're listening to this podcast then zero ranger is definitely a game that needs to be on your radar um, just a quick add in here. I took a quick look at the game I couldn't think of, and the same as Crisis Point. As of this recording, it should be out in a couple weeks. So hopefully that will be good, and we can take a look at it in 2021. Cool. Speaking about things that are coming up, we have, or should already be playing since we're recording September, Kamui for, that came out on the PC and is a homage to Rayforce. I'm really enjoying my time with it so far. And I hope that everyone else is as well. In October, we have Darius Twin, which came out for the Super Nintendo. And if uh, by some miracle you got your shipment in from Strictly Limited Games, you could be playing on the Switch or PS4. <laughs> yes. So we'd also like to do a couple of shout-outs. We'd like to say thank you to Sarah Flash of Studio Muppets and slash Bullet Heaven for the logo. I'd also like to thank him for joining us on our last game of UN Squadron and look forward to some more collaboration with Sir Flesh in the future. I'd like to mention that we also have some very well-designed logo shirts, and I know that the orange shirt works very well for, for our podcast. I'd like to thank Kogasu for the intro and outro music, everybody who played with us for the month of August, at RFGen and everyone on the RFGen Playcast. I'd also like to thank Metalfro for streaming the game of the month and always making it interesting with it. Will, will his dogs win or will the game win or will Fro win? It's always a toss-up. <laughs> yes. And speaking of which, uh, make sure you follow me uh, on Twitter at GameBoyGuru so you can see updates about uh, my streams and of course follow us on twitter at shootcorecast to get updates on the podcast and to watch for the question of the month uh, make sure you join rfgeneration.com and come join us in a shmup club playthrough we'd certainly love to have you and uh, would love to hear your thoughts about the game that we're playing make sure you subscribe rate and review the podcast on your preferred platform we are on apple podcasts google play stitcher and Spotify now uh, so lots of places to to get our show 
And also, uh, make sure you join the ARF Generation Discord channel. There's a link right on the front page of ARFGeneration.com, and there is a dedicated Shoot the Corecast topic there where we can talk about the podcast, uh, we often talk about the Shmup Club Game of the Month, or just shooting games in general. And if you want to watch my streams, follow me on Twitch. Just go to twitch.tv slash gamebo,y and then you can come watch me die a lot and play and as addicted mentioned you know see my two chihuahuas uh attempt to interrupt my flow a man a shmup and two chihuahuas (laughs) uh i don't think that's a hit sitcom yet but it could be call me And with that, I think it's time for us to sign off. So thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll see you next month.